The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O merciful Lord, you did not spare your only Son, but delivered him up for us all. Grant us courage and strength to take up the cross and follow him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of things I want to talk about today from the, today's readings, but I promised someone that I would hold them off until I finish at least what I'm supposed to cover in Luke 12 today. So let's, uh, let's shoot for Luke 12. Go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 12, verse 4. Um, it's also there on your handout, the, bo- the bottom half of the front of the handout. We started talking about this last week, and um, there's some, some overlap between that and today's, uh, today's gospel lesson in church. So I'll read it again. Sorry for the repetition from last week, but faith comes by hearing, so don't complain about it. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So just to kind of sum up what I said last week, uh, when this, Jesus gives this cue where he says, I tell you, my friends, he's about to give them some kind of troubling news. Do not fear those who kill the body. It's, kind of, it's like they're going to be facing those who are going to try to kill their body, which we know happens, happened in the, in the early church. But he's specifically in the context of, of uh, railing on the Pharisees. In fact, Luke 12 is, is kind of sandwiched between a lot of rants against the Pharisees. So those who kill the body and have nothing more they can do is also kind of referring to the persecution brought to them by the, the I mean, for them it would be the church, the Pharisees. Do not fear. So we're going to talk about fear a little bit. Um, I just, I just had this flashback. Um, when I, in like 1993, 92, I guess it would have been a fad from 92 to 95, you ever, you ever see those t-shirts that say like, no fear on them? Oh man, I, my mom must have bought me a million of those. It's like, all, it's like the, trying to encourage, um, I don't know, whatever, confidence in sports maybe, you think? Yeah, the concept is, I'm not, I'm not afraid of anything, but I am, which is why I have this shirt to remind me, right? Well, they, so the, I mean, what, even, even that shirt, I mean, I'm just kind of thinking this through afresh now as I'm thinking about that, even that shirt. There are things that we're afraid of that we're trying to pretend that we're not afraid of them. Oh, I was at Starbucks, obviously, uh, not too long ago, and the guy in front of me uh, had this really creepy looking tattoo of the devil, like on the back of his uh, wrist. And he was standing in front of me and had his arm down, which of course, staring me in the face. He's asking me to ask him about it, right? So it's on him. So I said, hey man, interesting tattoo. Can you tell me about it? No, 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 no. People don't talk to me when I wear this. <laughs> it's, an it's a remarkable thing. We're, the, the uniform is like, um, oh, I can talk about that in a second, but 
It's like you're, you're, I'm the walking law. I never have to like tell people, hey, you haven't been in a church in a while. Uh, you should probably get back to church. It's good for you. I never have to say those words. I see people wearing this and they say, Pastor, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't even say anything. Um, but so, so this, he, he, he actually said, so the picture was it's supposed to be the devil. It's supposed to be like death and the demons or something like this. And I said, so why would you, why would you get that tattoo? I'm just curious. And he said, I put it on there uh, to remind myself that I shouldn't be scared of it. I said, or you could just remind yourself not to be scared of it. I mean, <laughs> but now I got this creepy tattoo. I might've been with one of the girls. They're like with me and they're, daddy, what is, so, so he had this way of saying, I'm not, I don't want to be scared of this particular thing and I'm putting it on, my, on myself to remind myself not to be scared of it. In the same way, maybe we, we, this is a philosophy behind the way some people practice Halloween and it's not a bad one. So the kids will dress up like, um, I mean, now they're all dressing up like superheroes and stuff, but in the, in the earliest eras of Halloween, they're dressing up like little devils and demons and ghosts specifically to mock the devil and the demons. I mean, that's the idea for, for some. Uh, so I think a, a Christian can delight in that. So on Halloween, because remember the, the origins of Halloween, the night before, so All Hallows Eve, the nights before All Saints Day. So, so demons are on the mind, these, these are the souls of the dead or maybe lingering around cemeteries. So that's kind of in people's mind. And so to dress up like a ghost and be like, this is a joke, they can't hurt me, right? So some people have that mindset. Anyway, uh, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. Do not fear. Which commandment gets after that which we fear? All of them, right? They all start with, we should fear and love God. And um, we're, so the kids, like in the day school, going through the catechism, we had, I had two classes in a row. Like I went to, uh, I think Alex Clausen or Gabby Hahn's class. And then like right across the hall, like an hour, 30 minutes later or whatever. And two kids at two different classes had the same question. Why do we need to fear God? Because we spend so much time telling the kids that God loves you. And then we teach them the catechism that says, fear God. And so they're trying to like, wrap their minds around how am I to fear God when you said to love God? Well, that gets it. So as I try to explain it to the kids, um, what, like think about the kinds of things that we do that you are afraid of. I mean, the stuff the kids are afraid of are a bit different than maybe the stuff that adults are afraid of. So for kids, you know, I mean, you're afraid of um, a lot of, there's a lot of unknown things. Like you're still working through that there's no, there's no monster living under my bed. Um, but you're, maybe you're afraid of the dark because of something that could be in the dark. Uh, maybe you're afraid of, of um, some kind of insects, spiders, snakes. Um, as we grow up, we're afraid of different things. Yet we still know what fear is. And our fear controls us. Um, that's the, the picture I think I gave last week from like Sandlot when the kid jumps in the neighbor's backyard and 
the dog's chasing you in one way or the other. Your fear is driving you one way or another, trying to appease that which is causing you fear. So if you fear poverty, you'll do anything it takes. You'll break all the commandments so that you don't experience poverty. Um, so a, a, an easy one to pick on there would be like in the abortion conversation. Where the, one of the main rationales given for those um, who, who are unfortunately sucked into getting an abortion, it's that if I have this child, like I'm, I'm in poverty now, and I don't, and that's not good. So already you're kind of seeing what the false God is, this covenant of having more stuff. And so I want to have more stuff and I can't have more stuff if I have this baby. And this baby won't have more stuff either. It's gonna just perpetuate the poverty. So by killing the baby, I actually will free the baby from poverty. I'm doing the baby a favor. Because the God then is not God, but who? Money. Or really the self, my desire for money. And that's a sad thing. So you, you want to, um, you, you, can, you can see how, how what our God is is exposed by what our sins are. As I mentioned last week, all the TV shows that are about CSI murder type stuff, they're all, all these, all sins are connected because once you're willing, you're trying to appease one God, all, uh, like money, for example, all the other commandments start falling to please that God. Whether that's, if it is money, you're willing to kill for it. Um, it leads to adultery, perhaps. There's lying, um, fear of reputation being lost. If maybe you're losing your, uh, having your reputation being hurt is your greatest fear. Or the love of your reputation. And therefore, you're, you're wanting to lie and cover up certain things, all to protect your reputation. Or, or when someone insults you, um, you get angry and, and retaliate because by insulting you, they have hurt your name and your reputation because your reputation is your God and makes you mad and you lash out. Or like, I always remember like, I went to a one, I think like one professional football game in my life. It was the Chiefs back when I was in Seward. So a buddy of mine had gotten tickets. We drove down to Kansas City to watch the Chiefs play. And, uh, and I'm not a Chiefs fan. It's just it's cool to watch professional football, I guess. Back in the day when they used to not kneel for weird things. <laughs> um, so I remember after the game, obviously probably a little bit of booze was involved. But there are these two guys on alternate teams, fans of alternate teams, started going after each other violently with words and then actions. Obviously alcohol is tied to that. But all alcohol did was kind of like silence that little voice in your head that said, it's really not worth it to fight with this guy just because he's wearing a Chiefs jersey. But you see, like sports is a silly thing, but it, it becomes the God of so many people because it's fashioned their identity. So you can see, like, I remember in uh, Concordia, or uh, when, after I graduated Concordia, I worked at a factory in, in Nebraska, and nothing makes you want to go back to school faster than working at a factory in the middle of nowhere in Nebraska. So I was like six months there. And during lunch, every day for like 20 minutes or whatever, you sit around the table and all the guys, all they talked about every single day was what? The Huskers. 
I was everything for them. And like, so people's emotions were like rise and fall based on the scores of the Huskers during, during football season. So it's driving them. And so when people insult the Huskers, you haven't insulted the Huskers, you've actually insulted me because the Huskers form my identity. And that's where this overlaps a little bit with today's gospel lesson and the sermon theme at least. Whereas when I, put my, when I build my identity out of fearing or loving or trusting in things that I should not, then I'm, I'm, it leads me to sin in weird ways. I'll fight, I'll fight with people just because they're wearing a jersey of an opposing team. What? It's insane. Well, it makes sense when your identity is formed on that. So what we fear controls us. And specifically here, Jesus is calling us not to fear this per, the people who would bring persecution to us. So he's calling us to faithfulness in the face of persecution, especially for the, for the hearers of the original text would have been those who are persecuted by the Pharisees and experiencing the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Because after they've even killed you, there's nothing more that they can do. So don't fear them. And this is, he's going to pick up on this in the next section. I want to get to it because he's leading up to con- giving a good confession in verse 8. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So he's, call, he's exhorting Christians to actually giving a good confession of faith and life by not, not fearing those who kill the body and they have nothing they can do. Because if you win now and lose eternally, you've lost eternally. It's better to lose now, right? Because after, they, after that, after they have killed the body, there's nothing more that they can do. So, but if losing your body is your greatest fear, then you're willing to do anything it takes to sustain the life in your body, right? I mentioned a persecution in a sermon this morning, and to find that, I had to read through a ton of different persecutions. Because I'd heard of this before, and I was looking for, I was looking for it, but like, when you go through the accounts of the martyrs in the first and second centuries of the church, just brutal, brutal stuff, and you walk away like, man, why didn't they just say whatever they needed to be said? To just, I don't really mean it. I don't really mean that I, that I worship the emperor and not Jesus, but I'll say it just to get out of this uncomfortable situation because I want to live another day. And so I'm willing to, to sacrifice the, a good confession of Jesus, a good confession of the faith now to keep my body going a little bit longer. And, that, and behind that, furthermore, is just our, our sin exposing our, not just our false gods, our, our false belief in the true God, but really just our unbelief. Because if a person actually believed firmly that when I die, the Lord will call me to himself, then I'm begging this guy to just kill me. And, that, and that's, the, that's where you, re, re, you can read some of these martyr accounts of the guys and gals skipping into, into martyrdom. How do you do that? Except for, you're like, well, this is going to last, what, a couple hours, maybe, depending on how they're torturing me or whatever, but then it's like, what? Then, then what? Heaven? This is nothing, right? What a, what exa- the testimony of the martyrs is fantastic. But I warn, verse 5, I will warn you whom to fear. 
So don't fear those who kill the body and then do nothing. Instead, fear him who after he has, after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. So Jesus obviously pointing back to himself. Remember at the, at the end of Matthew's account, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, right? The Great Commission, is, as it's called, right? All authority, all authority in heaven. That is the word to say, hey, come into heaven, enter into heaven, or don't enter into heaven. That's given over to Jesus. All authority is given to me, he says. So I, he's got the authority to cast someone into hell. And there's different words translated as hell. I know I mentioned this last week. Gehenna is the, that's the bad one. It's often translated hell. Sometimes, sometimes the word Hades will be translated as Hades or the deep or the depths. But Gehenna is bad, bad, bad. It's coming up in a few weeks with the rich man of Lazarus. And you've got Lazarus who's in heaven and the rich man who's in Gehenna. And he's in hell and he wishes he could have, the, have Abraham touch the water and tip, touch his tongue or something. Or have Lazarus touch water to his tongue just to cool his, his mouth. Well, Gehenna was a real place. This is fascinating. Outside of Jerusalem, they would, where they would burn the garbage, there was just like a perpetual fire that was always going where they'd just take the garbage out and throw it in the pile and it would burn. And it happened to also be the same, the same like piece of ground back whenever Israel was, was wrestling with Baal worship and Molech worship, where the people would go and take their babies and sacrifice their babies to Molech and the, ash, the baby would just be killed right there in Gehenna. So this is like the, the, the very, the, the, the place of paganism, where, the, where pagans are killing babies and where garbage is being burned, where the fire doesn't stop because the fire is burning. That's the picture in your mind. If you're, if you're, a, Luke, if you're a Luke in here, you hear Gehenna and you think this place where the fire is burning all the time, where the worst of all sins have taken place. And it's just this tragic, despairing, hopeless, sad, death, stinky place. Uh, I fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into Gehenna, into hell. Well, that's weird. Jesus loves me this I know. Uh, what about casting me into Gehenna? Yes, I tell you, fear him. All right, well, that is more scary. Like if the alternative is, so Jesus is gonna, can, if I, I can either die by the flesh, by, the, by these Pharisees, or I can die by the flesh and then be thrown into Gehenna by God. So I'm gonna, I ultimately care more about what he can do to me than what they can do to me. So right now though, we're driven by, we're driven not by love, but by fear at this point. So I wanna, I wanna follow Jesus and not the Pharisees because Jesus can do worse things to me. Is that love? That's fear, right? Still, it's still true, <laughs> but I mean, so he's about to flip it on us, but we I mean, think about it from a parent perspective. Ultimately, as we discipline our children and try to teach them right from wrong, we're trying to instill in them a love and desire for doing good. But as we're teaching them along the way, part of discipline is also having them fear things um, because there are consequences. We're, we're, and we still, as a, we fear consequences for our, our sins. They're teaching your kids to... But ultimately, though, I, I want my kids to say they love me, not because they're afraid of what I'm going to do if they don't, but because they actually 
love me, right? So then now he's going to turn it. So he's, he's started with fearing those who kill the body, and he's transitioning to those who can kill, the, the one who can kill the body, but also throw your body and your soul into hell eternally. And now he's going to transition a step into, into love. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And that's kind of a weird thing. Um, apparently, especially in, in first century Israel, meat was not a common thing for just the average person to eat. So sparrows, these small birds with very, very little meat on them, you can actually buy a sparrow and, and have a little bit of meat if you, if you ate meat at all. So in five sparrows, which is very small, seemingly meaningless thing at the bottom of the food chain, they're sold for, for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God. So now there's this shift. So God, so here, what's, the, what's the cheapest, most seemingly insignificant thing I can think of? A sparrow. And you can, you can buy five of them for two pennies or whatever. Um, and yet God knows all of them. Not one of them is forgotten by him. Now, why even the hairs of your head. So if, if, God's, if God cares so much about birds, don't you think he's going to care more about you? Why even the hairs of your head are all numbered? So it's, it's called a divine passive here. It doesn't say why even God numbers the hairs of your head, but it doesn't, it doesn't give a subject. It just says the hairs of your head are all numbered. A lot of times, typically in the scriptures, when you run across such a thing, it's called a divine passive. It's obviously referring to numbered by God. God knows the, the constantly declining number of hairs on my head. <laughs> so fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So fear those who can hurt, uh, don't fear those who can hurt the body because that's all they can do. Instead, fear Jesus because he can, he can kill the body and then throw the body and soul into hell eternally. But guess what? The one who has the authority to cast you into hell eternally, he loves you more than even little sparrows. You have more value than many sparrows. There's a lot wrapped into this. For, first, maybe let's sit, on, um, let's sit on value for a second. Why are we of more value than the sparrows? Because he's given this actually kind of corporate teaching. He's talking to certainly his initial disciples there gathered around him. And let's think about why are they of more value? Obviously, their net worth is really, really high, right? Of course not. Um, like, so they're fishermen, got a tax collector there. Uh, these aren't like the most highest reputable people necessarily in their, in their time. And as we see throughout their ministry, they're not even that great of guys. Peter himself at the crucifixion, denying Jesus three times, right? James and John always fight, the sons of thunder, fighting about who gets a better seat in the kingdom. All along the way, the disciples are telling Jesus not to go to the cross. Don't help the needy. We're in a hurry here. Don't heal a blind guy. He'll make you unclean. Don't touch the unclean stuff, Jesus. So these are the disciples all along the way. You're of more value than many sparrows, not because of anything in you, but our value is because of who we belong to. 
Uh, when I was like, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, I collected baseball cards and I got really excited one time. I got this Eddie, Eddie Murphy. No, Eddie, there was a base, who's a comedian? Eddie Murphy? There was a baseball player, Eddie Murray. Uh, I did not have a baseball card of Eddie Murphy. So it's an Eddie Murray, like special rookie card or something. I was all excited about it. Like, me and my brother opened these packages of cards. Yeah, I got, Dad, look. So I had this book called Beckett that would tell me how much money the card was worth. It was, it was worth like $45, which for an 11-year-old kid, it's worth $45. And he ran up to my dad, Dad, I got this card worth $45. And he goes, well, it's not really worth $45. Why? Things are only worth what? But somebody's going to pay for it. So I got this $45 rookie card that my sister does not care about. And I could say, Chelsea, can, can you give me 45 bucks? I'll make a deal. Give me 40 bucks for this card. And she's just going to laugh. It has zero value to her, right? So things are only worth what they're paid for. So think about it from God's perspective. What does he give up to buy you? His son. His all. Eternal... Eternal suffering that we would experience in hell was experienced by Jesus on the cross in our place. He has paid everything for us. That's your value. Unfortunately, I mentioned on the handout here about the question uh, on the bottom on number three, what is the source of our personal value? How does the world determine value today? And what are the moral implications of that? This is a real issue that we're going to continue to be facing in the next decade, especially as... Um, the, the powers that be, the government are, um, as, as they kind of gather more power in the healthcare community, um, when decisions are going to have to be made on who will receive certain treatments because there's limited funds. And not, none of you have any money because all of your money now belongs to us. Socialism, right? Or we, we all share it collectively. And, and so everybody's like, oh, we should get, I wish we had socialized health care like everybody else. And they're so, all so happy. Well, no. Here's what happens. At a certain point, because there's limited resources, we, we can only serve either this person or this person because we're running out of money. We're running out of beds, we're running out of places to put people and doctors to serve them and so forth. So here I got an 18-year-old young lad with a strapping young future ahead of him. Um, he's going to be able to work an entire life if we can just, if we can get him over this one thing. So his got more value to the collective, right? Because he can do more stuff. So we value him higher versus this person at the other end of life, maybe in his 90s, let's say, he's lived a, he's lived a good life. And ultimately, we can't help everybody. And so this person's life is worth less because their ability to, to do has gone down. Now, that's the, that affects the euthanasia question and, and the healthcare question, right? So ultimately, people, that's the decision that ends up being made. Or if a person's going to linger in, in some kind of expensive long-term care, you know what's cheaper? For the collective? Because he's 90. He could live to be 95. Wouldn't that be inconvenient 
Five years? Those of you who have your parents in nursing homes, how much does it cost for a month in a nursing home? A lot. Five years? And if that bill is picked up, not by you, because you don't have any money anymore, but by the collective, what are we going to do? Five more years? Or how about... She's a Christian anyway, right? Might as well end this, right? You don't want to be a burden to society. And so pe- people are devalued based on what they can do, what they can offer versus, uh, let, me, let me wrap this up, Keith, real quick. So where does a person's value come from? Not what they're able to do and give, but whose they are, who made them. So created in the image of God, redeemed by him. So he died for the sins of the world, whether or not this person believes it, whether or not this person who's, who's uh, we're deciding for care, whether or not they actually believe that they're created by God or that they believe they were redeemed by God, they were. And so we have our value as persons created in the image of God. And everything, flow, the way we treat one another, the way we speak to one another and uh, serve and love one another all flows from that starting point, not what I can get out of you. You're worth more to me because you can do more stuff for me or for the collective. And then take it a little bit further, an individual can, can have this like crisis of identity or a crisis of personal value when they've like in job, like uh, job transitions or, or when you, a person retires and they just feel like, well, before I was really important. I go to work and, and people depended on me and I was the head of the boardroom and all this kind of stuff. And, and then you retire and you don't have that same kind of influence over people and you feel less valuable because you're not the bottleneck anymore. So now if your value, if that was where your only source of value and purpose was, then you lose it all when you, when you lose your job or you get sick or you retire, you see? And so people's lives kind of come crumbling and they just go searching for meaning anywhere else, searching for value or worst case, even turn to suicide because what do I have to live for? I don't have any value anymore. Keith, what was your question? Well, but so from a left-hand kingdom perspective, that is, as we engage with one another in this life, there is, there is that aspect to it, right? Um, where a person, because we're looking at it, even a Christian can look at that scenario from a standpoint of love. If I die because someone else's negligence, what's the problem for my children? So I'm not worth, I'm not worth like a million dollars because I'm worth a million dollars. I'm worth a million dollars because it's going to cost Mandy a million dollars over the next 18 years to get those kids taken care of. Like if she's going to have to work, right? Who's going to take care of the kids? Who's going to pick up the kids? We got to get a nanny. How does it all work? Who's going to watch the kids? Or if she doesn't work, where's the money going to come from, Right. So that's where the valuation, and from a Christian perspective, we can actually say there's a, ju- there's a good and reasonable place for that conversation because 
especially in our in our legal system today, the way that we all we all are, have like homeowners insurance for that very purpose. So that if a person falls on my front patio, because if I have people from church over to my house and they slip on the front steps because it's always covered in ice, like all of our houses are, like all winter long, and they fall and hit their head and they're at severe brain damage, they've got a family and young children. Uh, so I, I, I want to be able to pay for all this medical care that they're going to need for themselves and to take care of their families. But guess what? My bank account ain't that deep. So they said, no, pastor, don't worry about it. Um, we have insurance. Well, guess what your insurance company says? Where were you when you fell again? So whose fault is it? Who's negligent? Pastor Clemmer. Well, they're not going to go after my pockets and I don't care. They're going to go after whoever I state farms. And that's good. So the conversation there is, I have insurance for this very purpose. So state farm can pay for your brain damage and your families. So that's a healthier way of looking at this conversation that's often, to be sure, messy and not without pain. But the value, there is valuation from a left-hand kingdom of people. Jesus is getting at something even more, though, is he values us enough to die for us the dollars can't even measure he's given everything for us and then this is it's in the context of heaven and hell and hurting our bodies we have our we we are we're at peace and we can say fear not because as we pray in luther's morning and evening prayer into your hands O god i commend Myself, my body and soul and all things. My, I, into your hands I commend, I hand it over to you, my, myself, my body and soul, which are the two specific things that Jesus is talking about having authority over. And, and not just myself, my body and soul, but also all things, which includes all the other stuff I'm worried about. I commend it over to him because he loves me more than a sparrow. He knows what he's doing. He's looking out for me. And so this is what gives a Christian peace then, that I have, I have this high value in the eyes of God, that I can commend everything over to him. And my failure to commend everything over to him, just it reveals my, it reveals my idolatry and my lack of faith, right? So I, ultimately I trust in God, but I also trust in these other things. Well, so he calls us to repent from that. Mike, did you have a question earlier? Is there a hand in my peripheral? Perfect. Cause of death? Just behind unknown cause of death? <laughs> Inside joke there. Huh, that's something. Do you guys hear that? I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that, that they had come out and say it so clearly that, that Canada is encouraging euthanasia because it's cheaper form of, of healthcare. So that's a real issue. We're going to be facing it, unfortunately, it seems, the way things are going. So we have to be, we are, we're standing up for truth and a person's value, not based on what they would say about a person, but what, what the Lord says about them, which means we don't take a life. Only God takes life. Only God gives life. And so we're going to do everything we can to sustain this life. We don't have to do it artificially. I mean, this gets into a different, different ethical question, but 
I know some of you, and unfortunately, probably many of us will have to face these difficult decisions in our lives because health health care or the, the medical community is good enough. We can keep a body alive when everything is shut down, you know, like artificially. So the whole conversation of should I pull the plug kind of a thing. Um, well, that's a crass way to put it. But when, so when a person is put on life support, we don't, want to do, we, we don't want to do anything to kill the individual, but we also don't have to keep people alive artificially indefinitely. Because we could kind of just keep people... Um, what's that? Doctor Who, some weird scene I saw. Like, I watched Doctor Who one time, and it was enough to make me think I'm never watching this again. And there was like this, this lady, she was like the last human in the future, and they had like taken just her face and put it like, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So they found a way to keep her alive like forever by removing her face and putting her on this like machine. It's like, what are you doing? So we, especially as Christians, we're able to say, I don't need my body to be kept alive forever because I know where I'm going. But the Christian on this side of this side of death, we're never given to take a life but we don't have to unnecessarily sustain it. So a person can, in good conscience, decide to stop treatment for certain diseases. Um, when it comes to life support, um, some, some conversation is regarding like feeding tubes. We don't, wanna, we don't wanna take food away from a person who's unable to actually eat, um, but we don't have to like artificially keep their lungs going. We do wanna feed them, but we don't, wanna, we don't have to keep their heart beating indefinitely, manually. Um, so that gets an ethical problem because then the devil comes back to you and, tell, and, and starts to make you question whether or not you've done the right thing or if I'd have waited a little bit longer or uh, all that kind of stuff. And there, that's where you say, my, my pastoral counsel is always, yes, you probably did the wrong thing. Your, your decision was probably laced with your selfishness and sin in some way, but that's why Jesus died. You made this decision as best you could with the information you had in front of you. It wasn't an easy decision, but the doctors are saying all this. If the doctors say you should kill this person because it costs too much, that's a different question. But, but they say, look, the brain is completely gone. Um, we're, right now, we're just keeping them alive with these electronic things. You don't have to keep those things on. And you, you can also, in good conscience, leave it on and try to try to hold out until there's a miraculous turnaround and, and lean on prayer right so the christian is often placed in these ethical difficult decisions but ha- knowing that a person's value that's my point of bringing it up here at least an individual's value is not based upon what i can get out of them and i say i but also the collective how, how good they are beneficial to society it is why is this person have any value at all? Always comes from, they, they're made by God, period. That's where their value is from. That's a little bit heady, but I, but I think it, it helps clarify some of these challenging decisions. But again, back to this fear thing, we, we can rightly put our fear in God alone. And when, with our fear pla- placed in God alone, we actually need fear nothing else, including him. See that, how that works? Because he, so when we turn away from all the things that are causing us fear to, to fearing God alone, 
we see not a God who's wanting to hurt us, but a God who has in fact died for us and values us so much that he's willing to die for us. We're worth everything to him. And so we need not fear God. And, and therefore we're able to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, and teach our children all that. Um, not just because he loves me in general, which he does, but it's because he actually gave up everything to save me from hell. Otherwise, in my sin, I should fear God. So for those outside of Christ, there's, nothing, there's no way to look at God apart from his wrath upon sin. But though, as those who are in Christ, we're able to see God as one who need not be feared anymore. But in our sin, we need to fear God, which run, drives us back to Jesus. See? Any comments or questions on that? But this is tied, tied somewhat to the hate and love from today. Uh, today's gospel reading, I wanted to unfold a tad. And the, but I want to finish this handout because I'm sick of reprinting it every have, having Beth reprint it every week. So let's maybe take... Uh, we're at time. I'm not going to do it. Nope. Self-control. We're gonna, we'll, do, we'll do Acknowledge Christ Before Men next week um, and then get into the next section as well. But this comes up a little bit today in today's gospel reading, whether or not you've been to church yet. But Jesus gives these harsh words of, unless, if you want to be my disciple, you have to hate father, mother, son, daughter, wife, children. You have to ultimately renounce all that you have if you're going to be my disciple. And we're, so this is so confusing because in the catechism or in the Ten Commandments, um, how does it say in the fourth commandment about honor your father and mother, which you fear and love God, so we do not despise your anger, my parents, or other authority, but like listen to them, obey them, love and love and cherish them. Love, not hate, love them. Uh, fifth commandment, don't hurt your neighbor, but help him. Don't hate him, help him. Sixth commandment, should fear and love God, so we do not uh, it, despise marriage. Ultimately, we want to uphold marriage and husband and wife love and honor each other. So love is clearly there in the commandments. And yet Jesus is saying, you can't be my disciple unless you hate these people. What? Oh, well, let's go along with our days. But no, here's how we justify it. And I only had, I try to keep my sermon short. So I only said one sentence about it. But, and I think in our minds, we think, okay, what Jesus means to say is that we love God here. And then everybody else, we, we just love, as long as it's, it's in order. God first, and then my family, and my spouse, and like, like all this kind of stuff, right? That's not what he says. He says, love him alone, hate everything else. And what that does, it, it, it flips everything around and has us seeing one another our, in our families only as those who are given to us as a gift from the one that we love. So now I love my wife and children and parents and siblings, not as something in and of themselves that, that they have value to me because of something I get out of them, but they only are to be loved by me because he gave them to me. So now think about how it flips out. Everybody in your life is to be seen as a gift from the one that you love, the one that you love. So I love God and he gives me my wife or not my children or not. So we see everything that we have or don't have in our life, our jobs or not, whatever. We see it as a gift from him. He is the one 
that defines who I am and gives me value and, and loves me. And my love, my love for him ultimately is my identity. So he defines good and evil, right and wrong. He's where I'm coming from, ultimately where I came from and where I'm going. He has me looking at this world in a certain way. Um, so my identity ultimately comes from him. And now to be sure, in the left-hand kingdom in this world, yes, he places in our lives individuals. So for example, he made me to be the second among three children, the middle child, which brings with it psychologically, potentially, depending on how much you buy in that psycho babble. Uh, so I, I, I want people to get along. So like, so because I'm in the middle, trying to get people to just get along. Some would say, would say, well, that's a typical trait of middle child. But I'm also the oldest son. I've got a little brother, an older sister. And as the oldest son, I've got these leadership styles. So as a middle child, an older son, of course, you're going to be a pastor or one of these other leadership type thing. So we can try to, we can, we can play that game, maybe. But ultimately, who is the one that stuck me in the middle of two siblings? God. Who's the one that made me the older brother? Who's the one that, so we can say God has given us our personalities. He's given me, he's the one who had me born in Mississippi in 1983 or whatever. Like, so all the things that form what we would say our identity is formed by, it's all from his hand anyway. So I'm able to see, if, if anything you walk away from it, because so there's so much, there's all this hate. And um, so Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote the book, The Cost of Discipleship, and Jesus, this is the text for the cost of discipleship. When you're, when you're starting to build a house, if you don't measure the cost, you're going to lay the foundation and run out of money. So what is the cost of building a house is Jesus' analogy for what is the cost of being a disciple. And so what he says is it costs you everything. You are to hate, renounce all. But then he comes back because he gives it all back to you. He gives it to you as a gift, but he does not give it to you as a God. It does not define you. It is not to be loved and trusted and feared above all things. That's him alone. So you see your wife then as a gift. You see your children as a gift from him. You see your career, your people you work with as a gift from him. Seeing everything then from the, from the posture of thanksgiving and thankfulness and gift. See? Any other? Yeah. I'd say um, insofar as we are sinners, that's certainly a thing. So um, we, we don't want to disappoint God. Interestingly, though, God gives us, he gives us the gift of confession and absolution, which is his idea, not the churches or mine or the Missouri Synod or something. Like he gives, he sends out the apostles to forgive sins as though he expects them 
to disappoint him. Right? So that's the that's, so he sets us to love and to, to, to live our lives according to the Ten Commandments. And yet at the same time, that's according to the law, according to my sinful flesh, I should strive not to disappoint God, but to love him and serve him. And, and yet, according to, my, according to my Christian self, I also know that when I do disappoint, he comes at me not with a whip, but with hands that have been, that have been scarred on the cross to forgive my sins. Good. Very good. We'll continue with verse 8. Chipping away at chapter 12. The Lord be with you.